This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. In May 2022 for Talking Soundtracks, I had the pleasure of talking once again to four-time Emmy-nominated journalist, writer and producer of over 200 documentaries about music and cinema, Stephen C. Smith. This time about his first book, published in 1991, A Heart at Fire Centre, The Life and Music of Bernard Herrmann. Part one of our interview concerned Herrmann's radio career, his collaborations with Orson Welles leading to the beginning of his film career with Citizen Kane. In part two of this special interview for Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, as well as featuring more of Herman's wonderful music, either from original recordings or re-recordings, we talk about the composer's career right up to his premature death in 1975, and featuring his most important collaboration of his entire career with director Alfred Hitchcock. But how did the two men first meet? Yes, well, the the Herman Hitchcock collaboration, which is you know arguably let's say it ties with Spielberg and Williams perhaps as the greatest in the history of film. This decade long association with Herman and Hitchcock began in 1955, but it almost started a lot sooner in the early 40s when Benny was passing through Hollywood. He met Hitchcock, I believe it was at the Brown Derby, and they talked briefly about possibly working together. And Hitchcock certainly was aware of Herman's music. And then a little later, they happened to be at a party at the same time and, you know, talked again. And I hope that someday I can provide more answers as to why those collaborations didn't happen. I can tell you that in many cases, many of the films that Hitchcock was directing were produced by David O. Selznick. And Selznick pretty much took over post-production. And Hitchcock was often moving on to his next project because Selznick was such a frustrating micromanager of things that Hitchcock, you know, I think felt that his energies were better applied elsewhere. So that's why the scoring of the films was really in Selznick's hands during those years of the 1940s that Hitchcock was under Selznick's contract for the most part. But then, finally, in 1955, Hitchcock decided to work with Herman because he had worked happily with the composer Lynn Murray on To Catch a Thief, and Lynn Murray was still working on To Catch a Thief at the time when Hitchcock needed the composer for his next film, The Trouble with Harry. Lynn Murray and Bernard Herrmann were friends, and in a recommendation that I'm sure Lynn Murray must have regretted on some, some level, and he was a very nice and witty man, but Murray said, why don't you listen to the music of Bernard Herrmann? Well, Hitchcock and Herrmann clicked from the very start once they began working together. Hitchcock loved the music of The Trouble with Harry. In fact, it would be his favorite of all the Bernard Herrmann scores written for his films because it was comic and not just ha-ha funny, but kind of mordantly comic. But it's also quite beautiful, and it's suspenseful when it has to be. And Herrmann later turned some of that music from The Trouble with Harry into a short concert suite called A Portrait of Hitch because he felt that the music that he wrote for uh, The Trouble with Harry also really described the personality of Hitchcock with its range 
of sensitivity and romance, but also a lot of dark, mordant humor.
tell us about his work on Vertigo, particularly as down the line towards the end of his career, there's a link to yes, a school yes. we'll look at later, Obsession. Well, Vertigo certainly reflects how much Hitchcock had come to trust Bernard Herrmann. Before this film, they had worked together on the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Hitchcock liked Bernard Herrmann so much that Bernard Herrmann is the conductor of that famous Albert Hall attempted assassination sequence. We see Bernard Herrmann's names on the posters outside the Albert Hall and maybe the greatest cameo ever by a composer in a film. You can't ask for better than that. They collaborated rather on The Wrong Man, a Henry Fonda film that was kind of unusual for Hitchcock, kind of a docudrama, true story told with minimal Hitchcockian touches, let's say. And then came Vertigo. And Vertigo, as we know, is such an unconventional film. It was not popular when it was released. It was not successful when it was released. It took many years for people to appreciate it as the masterpiece that it is. And one of the things that's unusual about the film is how many sequences play with very little or no dialogue. I mean, think of Jimmy Stewart as Scotty Ferguson when he starts to follow Madeline, played by Kim Novak. There are all those scenes of him driving the car behind her car. She goes into the flower shop. She goes into a hotel. And all of that was left to play in the open, if you will, without dialogue. And in Hitchcock's notes, uh, his sound notes, Hitchcock will write things like, Mr. Herman may have something to say here, which was his rather understated way of saying, I'm basically giving real four <laughs> to Bernard Herman and, and real five. And when it came to the, the famous scene when Scotty convinces this other doppelganger of Madeline, a woman named Judy, to change her look to be identical to the now-deceased Madeline. There's that, that lengthy sequence of the, the famous kiss and the camera travels around them 360 degrees. Herman was very fond of recalling that when Hitchcock was discussing that sequence with Benny, Hitchcock said, there will just be the camera and you. <laughs> and that's pretty much the case. I mean, there's no dialogue, you know, uh, after the very, very beginning of that scene, when it turns into the real fantasy romance of it, there's just minutes. And yes, it's, it's one of the greatest scores ever written. And Herman wrote a, a rhapsodic love theme for it. Well, there are many reasons that score works so well, but his orchestration is brilliant. He's using this triplet figure, this da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da that's very hypnotic. And the famous Saul Bass main title sequence is a great illustration of that, about how Herman creates music that is hypnotic. It's almost like pulling you into a whirlpool. And it's also very beautiful at the same time. You don't mind getting pulled into this whirlpool. And that's really what the film is all about. And that's something else that Herman liked to say. His feeling was that the music should tell the audience within the first minute and a half, two minutes, whatever the opening of the film was, it should tell them what the movie is about. And you can argue whether that's necessary or not, but it certainly worked for him, and it certainly worked on a movie like Vertigo, which is a strange film. And that main title sequence lets us know that it's going to be unconventional and that it, ultimately it's going to be about romantic obsession.
Now, her and Hitchcock's first collaboration was The Trouble with Harry, which was a comedy. Another comedy, but in a slightly larger scope, was North by Northwest, made in 1959 and starring Kerry Grant, Eva Resent, James Mason, Martin Landau, and features that amazing Fandango theme under the amazing main titles by, yet again, Sol Bass. Yes, well, I think it's safe to say that we would not have the movie North by Northwest if it weren't for Bernard Herrmann. Why? Well, it's because Benny introduced his friend, the screenwriter Ernest Lehman, to Alfred Hitchcock. At first, Ernest Lehman and Hitchcock were going to make a different film MGM wanted them to make, but neither of these men really had much interest in that topic. And I'm going to paraphrase here. Ernest Lehman said, you know, Hitch, what I'd really love to do with you is the ultimate wrong man chase film. And piece by piece, scene by scene, Hitchcock and Lehman came up with North by Northwest. For the score... The main title is based on the rhythm of a Spanish fandango. And the story is told that when someone at MGM learned this, they said to Herman, you know, Benny, the movie starts in New York City, and usually in New York, the music sounds, well, you know, sort of like Gershwin. Shouldn't we do something like that? To which Benny replied, this movie is not about New York. It's about the crazy dance between Cary Grant and the world. And you think about that, the fact that Grant was such a physical performer. I mean, he was a, an acrobat before he was an actor. And his physicality in all of his roles and his sense of comic timing is so much about movement. And, of course, this movie is about movement. The title says it, that Herman saw this movie as a giant dance. And that just shows what a genius he was. I mean, over and over, he would come up with an idea that was intellectually sound, but far more importantly, it was emotionally a knockout. And this is an example of that, a clever idea, but you don't need to know the idea to know that the music just pulls you into this movie from the first seconds of it.
And Herman also loved working on it because like The Trouble with Harry, it was really a comedy. I mean, it has suspense, but Herman saw it, especially compared with, say, Vertigo and the darker films that he's often associated with. This is a very breezy, delightful movie, and he loved scoring it. He's even amusing in his cue titles, or at least in one instance, for the famous Mount Rushmore finale. Herman titles that cue On the Rocks, <laughs> which drinkers will know has a different meaning. And Benny could be very funny. So that's a side of him people don't really know about. So yes, North by Northwest, one of the, the greatest and may I say most pilfered scores of all time. There are many action films that borrow a lot from that movie.
the word game changer is used a lot these days to the point probably of overuse, but there's no question that in so many ways, Psycho was a game changer. First, this was a movie that its studio, Paramount, didn't want to make. In 1959, when it was shot, you did not make movies about, spoiler alert, cross-dressing serial killers. You didn't kill your star of the movie 40 minutes into the movie and then ask the audience to identify with a whole new character. It was a very unconventional film, and indeed, this was a film that Hitchcock personally produced with his own money in it. And because it was such a risky movie, and because he wanted to try to do something different, and this is Hitchcock at his most bold, I think, and most risk-taking, he shot it in black and white, and rather than use his usual movie crew, he used a lot of the crew that was working on his television series, which had been going for five years by then and was very successful. There were a couple of major exceptions to who was behind the scenes on the film with him. He did keep George Tomasini, the editor, and he did keep Bernard Herrmann, luckily for us. Now, Herman, to his last day, would tell the story that when Hitchcock showed him the film, A Work in Progress, Hitchcock was very disappointed in it. And I do know that there had been a really dispiriting private showing of the film in progress for the people who worked on it. And the screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, said that he was stunned looking at it, at how lifeless it was. This was before it was scored. So Herman said that when Hitchcock showed him the rough cut of Psycho, Hitchcock was so unhappy that he was even contemplating cutting it down and making it a television program. And Herman, according to Herman, said, Hitch, I have an idea. <laughs> Leave, do not cut this film down to a television program. Well, that idea, and again, it's, it's a sign of how Herman could work within a limited budget and then do something absolutely out-of-the-box brilliant at the same time. For the first time on any major film, and please someone jump in and tell me if there is one before this, he used an all-strings ensemble of about 50 players. No brass, no percussion, no flutes, no woodwinds, none of the conventional instruments that are often used to make us jump in a horror film. It's all strings. And when asked why he did that, he later said that he wanted to create a black-and-white sound to match the black-and-white photography. Which, again, genius idea, brilliant, and especially when you think about it, because black-and-white images are not only black-and-white. There are thousands of gradations, gray and other colors within black-and-white. And that's exactly what Herman did with the string orchestra. Yes, he's limited to violins, violas, cellos, double basses, basses, but within that orchestra, he comes up with the most ingenious sounds, and none of them was more ingenious or effective than the notion of having the violinists slash the bridges of their instruments to create the music for the shower scene, for Arbogast's murder. And yes, Hitchcock didn't know what he wanted the music to be like, and to his credit, he pretty much left the scoring of these movies up to Benny, but he said, I don't want music for the shower scene. And Herman being Herman, he wrote music for the shower scene because he, he had this fabulous idea. And it's a testament to what a respectful relationship they had, that it was not until the film was being mixed, according to Herman, that Benny said, you know, Hitch, I know you didn't want music for the shower scene, but I did write a cue. Would you just listen to it? You obviously don't have to use it. And Hitchcock did. And Hitchcock immediately said, well, we'll be using that music. And Benny couldn't resist. He considered them good friends by this point. He said, Hitch, but didn't you, you told me you didn't want any music for this scene. To which Hitchcock said, improper suggestion, my boy. Which was as close as Hitchcock ever came to saying he was wrong about something.
So Hitchcock, in fact, loved that music so much that he didn't use the music that Herman wrote when we first see Norman Bates dressed as Mrs. Bates down in the cellar and John Gavin pulls the wig off and we realize Norman is really the killer. You'll notice there's a rather harsh music cut in that and we hear the shower music again. Herman had written other music for that, but Hitchcock just felt that 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 music was so effective he wanted it used one more time. And of course, it's everything now. It's used in commercials for parody. The Simpsons have done parodies with it, uh, perfectly recreated. It's a ringtone on phones, you know, along with John Williams' shark music. Those are the two most imitated film cues, I would say, in the history of cinema. After Psycho, Herman scored the birds. Well, wasn't really scored, more like helped with the sound design of the birds. And then Marnie scored with the traditional Herman sound. And then everything irretrievably ground to a halt as far as their relationship was concerned with Tom Curtin. Yes, it's amazing how quickly things change. It's really poignant to think of how close Hitchcock and Herman were both as professional collaborators and friends during the making of Psycho and then onto the birds when they collaborated creating electronic sounds instead of music, something incidentally that Herman thought was great. He was totally on board for that. But then Marnie was a commercial failure. Hitchcock was 65 years old. Hollywood gangs up on people when they start to not be successful. And there was a lot of pressure on Hitchcock to have a big commercial smash after that. And this is a rather complex story, and I refer people uh, to my book for the details. But basically, Hitchcock was put uh, under a lot of pressure to have a commercial score, that is, a commercially exploitable score, for his next movie, Torn Curtain. Well, Torn Curtain wasn't a very good movie. It didn't have a very good script. Hitchcock didn't have real chemistry with his stars, especially Paul Newman. And by the time the film was edited, no one wanted to say it, but I think people sensed that there were, they had a dog on their hands. And it was the last thing that Hitchcock wanted after his previous commercial failure. As often happens, there was a lot of pressure put on the composer to save the day. And Hitchcock told Herman that he wanted something that was not, quote-unquote, old-fashioned, which was sort of an insult to their previous work that had been so successful. And he said that he wanted a beat score. Well, what did he mean by that? I think he wanted something like, you know, think of the John Barry scores that were just starting in the James Bond series or the wonderful scores of Henry Mancini that brilliantly combined, you know, a popular song with underscoring in a movie like Charade of 1964. Well, Herman, I think, willfully and deliberately ignored the instructions. He did write a beat score, a score with rhythm, but more like Shostakovich than the Beatles or John Barry. And I think that in Herman's mind, I have no doubt that he thought that much in the way that Hitchcock recognized that having music for the shower scene was the right thing, Herman really believed that when Hitchcock listened to this dissonant avant-garde score for Torn Curtain, that Hitchcock would say, you're right, this is better for the movie. Well, that was a tremendous miscalculation on Herman's part. And in those days, directors, producers, you couldn't really hear a score until you were on the scoring stage. The best you could do is sort of play things on a keyboard, maybe get a few musicians together. But Hitchcock and Herman were were both moving in different places. Hitchcock just heard a little of it on piano. He did not hear the score until Herman began the recording of it. And Hitchcock came to that recording session a little late, listened, 
and he was furious, and he felt like he had been betrayed by Herman, and he fired him on the spot. The rest of the day was canceled. The rest of the sessions were canceled. In effect, Herman was canceled from Hitchcock's life. And given how much Herman loved Hitchcock's films, respected him as an artist, and considered him a close friend, it was like a breakup. I mean, it was he was absolutely devastated and in shock. And it should be said that by this time of early 1966, Herman had spent about a decade alienating most people in Hollywood with his behavior. He had a temperament that he simply couldn't control. If he thought someone was wrong or an idiot, he told them that. <laughs> And uh, he is an almost object lesson in how to alienate people. But I think he felt he would always have a Hitchcock or someone strong to back him up. And certainly he had all those years, first Orson Welles, then Alfred Newman, then Alfred Hitchcock. But Newman was no longer the head of Fox Music Department. And when Hitchcock broke with Herman, really nobody in Hollywood wanted to work with Bernard Herman. Yes, in reading the book, Herman did burn a hell of a lot of bridges in his life, didn't he? He did. It's really a tragedy because I'm biased. I'm his biographer, but not every biographer likes his or her subject. But I really like him. When you see Herman at his best, he would have been the most delightful dinner companion, telling the best stories or sharing incredible insights into people's work and creativity or giving really incisive descriptions of people's characters. And certainly that's what made him such a great portraitist of, of characters in music. But he had this really fatal flaw, because I think it did shorten his life, 
of having an exploding rage, of not being able to control his temper, of not suffering fools, and in the process, pushed away many friends. And, you know, his second wife left him. She just, Lucy Anderson couldn't bear his tirades anymore. And he loved her, but he lost her. Something which we mentioned earlier, Bernard Herrmann also did a lot of work for television. Maybe because of his training in radio, it worked for Herrmann because of the strained budgets for television. So he had to be inventive and imaginative in his orchestration. The two shows that stand out for me are the Twilight Zone and the Anthology series Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I really love about Bernard Herrmann was that he was not a musical snob. Movie stars for a long time would not do any television. Television was considered the place you went if you couldn't have a career elsewhere. But in the same way that Herrmann embraced radio and kept writing radio scores long after he'd written a symphony and a cantata that was performed by the New York Philharmonic and scored Citizen Kane, he went right back and scored radio episodes. He had the same attitude towards television, which was, if it's good... I will work on it. And the two best examples of that are the ones you mentioned, Rod Serling's immortal Twilight Zone series, and then the Hitchcock television series that began as Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but by the time Herman worked on it was called The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, because it was now an hour instead of 30 minutes. And I think that Herman's best work for television is as good as his best work for film. I mean, it's it's not really fair to compare them because he had much shorter time to work on them. There's less music in them. But he loved fantasy and he loved storytelling so that when he saw the pilot of The Twilight Zone, Where Is Everybody? He responded with a score so terrific that it's used in countless Twilight Zone episodes after that, as well as other CBS programs. And that's the other thing, is that he would create also suites of music, sort of generically like stock music. He'd, he'd, he'd like a, a collection of sci-fi cues or Western cues, knowing that CBS could then program them into other programs. He had no problem with that. And I think that his Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance, that that score is really a musical companion piece to The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. It's just heartbreaking, and it reduces me to tears when I hear it. And I encourage people to seek out the episode Walking Distance, because you will hear someone not hastily writing music, but writing music that is a, a heartbreaking elegy for what we lose as we grow up.
took those jobs very seriously. And when sometimes people would say to him, don't you really want to be writing just concert music and so forth? And why do you work in film and why do you work in television? He would say at times, I remember one of my favorite quotes was, Mozart wrote music for dinner parties. Bach wrote music for the Sunday service. In other words, it doesn't matter what form it is. If, if it's good, it's good. That wasn't an idea embraced by, let's say, most composers working in film, and certainly no quote-unquote serious concert composer would be caught dead working on, you know, episodic radio or television. But Herman just felt, and yes, there, there was money to be made in it, but he also felt, I want to go where the good work is. Yes, Herman did use some more ensembles, like on radio, particularly he concentrated mainly on strings and the odd additional instruments here and there. I should also say that one thing that I think makes his Twilight Zone music so powerful is that not only is it otherworldly, not only does he use these interesting instrumental combinations, but he, but he'll also use conventional instruments like, say, strings and harp, but his music can be menacing, strange, and beautiful at the same time. And really, now that I think about it, the Twilight Zone music was the first Bernard Herrmann music I heard. He wrote the original series theme, not the famous one that we all know that goes da-da-da-da-da-da, but it's a much more haunting theme that was written to reflect the original narration written by Rod Serling in this animation where we slowly move towards this cave. The music he wrote for a famous episode called Eye of the Beholder is a perfect example of how the music can be distressing and gorgeous at the same time. And in a way, that episode, which is all about conformity, that, that's something that Herman fought his entire life. He was the poster boy for nonconformity. And it wasn't just to be nonconformist. It wasn't just to be different. It was because he heard things differently. He saw things differently. And it's interesting, when he worked with Francois Truffaut on Fahrenheit 451, Herman supposedly said to Truffaut, because Herman would often go into a job, even one that he wanted with people he respected, he challenged them on it. And he said to Truffaut, what do you want me on this movie? You know all these modern composers, Stockhausen, and you can get all these different people to score your science fiction movie. Why do you want me? To which Truffaut reportedly replied, because they will give me the music of the 20th century, and you will give me the music of the 21st. Well, back in when the 20th century, when I first heard that, I thought, oh, that, that's a nice flattering comment. 
Well, now that we're living well into the 21st century, Truffaut is absolutely right. A day does not go by that Herman is not cited in a news article. I know this because I get alerts that his music isn't played, that it isn't inspiring a composer to make a choice in a certain way. He really did write the music of both the 20th and the 21st century, and you can hear that in the television music as well as the film. How much do you think Herman's own obsession of trying to become a renowned concert composer and conductor kind of wrecked his career? Yes, it's interesting that even though Herman was arguably the foremost dramatic composer of his time, he really wanted to have a different career, the career that Leonard Bernstein would eventually have, the kind of career that now many people can have. He wanted to be known first as a world-class symphonic conductor of both the standard repertoire and the unusual music that he championed throughout his life. He wanted to write concert music, and he wanted to score films and radio and TV and whatever he felt like. Well, he succeeded, of course, as we know, in, in the composing department for various media, but he was not successful in achieving his goal of being an in-demand symphonic conductor. He did conduct the New York Philharmonic. He conducted the London Symphony Orchestra, several other orchestras and concerts. But he alienated the people in charge of those orchestras with regularity. So he self-sabotaged over and over, and he just couldn't help himself. That is really one of those fascinating things about a person is he wanted this very much, but he got in his own way far too often. And of course, anyone with a reputation for being difficult, unless you're an absolute genius who sells out the concert hall, you're, you're not going to be asked back. And that's what happened to him. And another obsession was his success or lack of, of his opera work like Bobby Dick and particularly Wolverine Heights, because he was so obsessed with trying to get that recorded for most of his life. Well, I have to say, Moby Dick was a cantata, that is, a work written for the concert hall where a chorus sings behind the orchestra with some soloists. And that was successful in that it was given its premiere by the New York Philharmonic just after its completion, and it was conducted by Sir John Barbaroli. So even though it didn't go into the repertoire, it had a first-class premiere by the New York Philharmonic. Wuthering Heights, however, the complete opposite. Again, Herman wouldn't change a note of the music when people wanted him to shorten it, and it very much needed shortening. He refused, so there were no performances of it during his lifetime. There have been performances of it after his death. They did abridge the work, which is well over three hours uncut, and that isn't even without the usual you know, intervals that you have in an opera. And it has not found its place in the repertoire, and I don't think it's his finest work. I think it's the work he considered his finest concert music. He, he believed in it deeply, but I think that his work for film and television and is his greatest work. That's my opinion anyway. <laughs>
Now, Herman not only wrote music for fantasy for television, but also for the big screen for the classic movies which featured the wonderful stop-motion special effects of Ray Harryhausen, like The Seven Voyages of Sinbad, Jason and the Argonauts, Mysterious Island, wonderful, memorable fantasy movies that still stand up today, thanks to Homer's music. Yes, yes. Further proof of just how Catholic, with a small c, how diverse... Herman's musical interests were, or his dramatic interests were, the fact that he scored movies that were basically thought of at the time as kiddie films. And those are the stop-motion animation films by the great and eventually Oscar-winning Ray Harryhausen, like The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Mysterious Island, The Three Worlds of Gulliver, and Jason and the Argonauts. Very few composers of Herman's standard of his of his fame would have done these low-budget films that were, again, primarily geared at a young audience. Well, Herman not only scored them, but he took them every bit as seriously as he did Citizen Kane. And he writes music that is so diverse and interesting that we would need two hours to go through those scores. But I will just say that in each film, he takes the drama, the story, however kind of flimsy it is, so seriously. Some people thought Herman was too serious in his music, but that was how he saw the world with great, great conviction. And if something was supposed to be frightening, he found the fear in it. And I think his sensitivity that could be oversensitivity as a person, the thing that made him, you know, fly out of control emotionally, that same sensitivity was the reason he could tap into things like terror and intimidation and romantic yearning so strongly because he felt them. And yes, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, his last collaboration with Ray Harryhausen and the producer Charles Schneer, is a great example of how he used orchestra to execute his ideas because he eliminates the strings and focuses on brass and percussion for this mighty, powerful sound. And it makes the film feel so much bigger than it would otherwise. I will finish by saying that Yes, kids may have been the primary audience for these films, but those some of those kids were named Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Tom Hanks. And when Tom Hanks presented Ray Harryhausen with his honorary Oscar, he said, and I will paraphrase, many people think that the greatest film of all time is Citizen Kane. But in fact, the greatest film of all time is Jason and the Argonauts, which was such a charming way to introduce Harryhausen, but... It not only speaks to the impact that those Harryhausen movies had on the future generation of A-list filmmakers, but the movie that all the historians and cineasts think is the best, Citizen Kane and, and Jason and the Argots, what is the one thing they have in common? Of course, it's Bernard Herrmann.
I remember as a kid when those movies appeared on television, I was scared to death of them because of Homer's music. Yeah, and he was very proud of that, and he would show uh, those famous sequences during his, his lectures. So that's why I say I, I so admire the fact that he didn't look down on those films. I think that's another reason he's so popular today is that he didn't just say, what's the biggest budget movie the studio's making? What's the Oscar bait movie this year? Not that they would have used that term then, but you know what I mean. He looked at what are the interesting movies? You know, what are the movies that have interesting situations for a composer? Now, as we've already said, Herman had a incredible habit of burning bridges. How did his relationship with Fox come to an end? Well, no, I, the temper wasn't really the problem with Fox. It was the fact that Alfred Newman was no longer the head of the music department, and Alfred's brother Lionel did not respect Herman as a composer. And I have to say, having heard some of the outtakes of the scoring sessions, Benny yells a fair amount at Lionel when they're all working on something. You listen to the outtakes of the day the earth stood still. And, you know, you might have one of them in the booth listening to how it's being played. You might have one of them conducting. Alfred might have been conducting Benny in the booth or Lionel might have been conducting. So Lionel Newman told me, and I was floored, that he didn't think Bernard Herman was a good composer. He thought he was a brilliant orchestrator and not a good composer. There's a story that Benny's widow Norma likes to tell. At some point, Lionel said, Benny, we're running with the kids now. Because, of course, as always, there was a new generation coming up. And that was another reason Herman stopped getting jobs. So Lionel said, we're running with the kids. Well, later when Herman had his fabulous Act Three renaissance, Herman smiled and said to his wife, Norma, now I'm running with the kids. <laughs> he didn't forget that phrase. <laughs> then after being shunned by Hollywood, he started this, as you mentioned earlier, unique relationship with French director Francois Truffaut. Well, I think it came to a large degree, I think, because of Truffaut's idolatry of Hitchcock. You know, Truffaut loved the Hitchcock films that Herman had scored. And he asked Herman to score 
Fahrenheit 451 shortly before the whole debacle of Torn Curtain and Benny being fired from that Hitchcock project. So at least Benny, as devastated as he was, knew that he would have Fahrenheit 451 to score, and he did. He and Truffaut had a less simpatico collaboration on their second film together, uh, The Bride Wore Black, based on the Cornell Woolrich novel and starring Jean Moreau. It's a film with sort of subtle tonal changes, and that's a case where Herman wrote a very dark and heavy score, certainly reflective of the material. And Truffaut wanted, particularly in some places, lighter music. And he dropped music, he moved cues around so they were in different places than where Herman intended it. And Herman left that project not very happy, not having had a falling out per se with Truffaut, but just finding it an unsatisfactory experience. Then the films that Truffaut did after that weren't necessarily what I guess Truffaut thought of as appropriate for Bernard Herrmann. Years later, though, they saw each other in France and had a lovely visit, so it wasn't like they had a burned bridge relationship. So being the Anglophile as he was, Herman decided to move to England after being shunned by Hollywood. But then in the early 1970s, a number of young directors found Herman's work and created a renaissance in his film music career. Yes, by the early 1970s, those kids who were watching the Ray Harryhausen movies had grown up and were making movies. And among them was Brian De Palma, who, as we know, was also rather fond of Alfred Hitchcock's style of filmmaking. So when De Palma made a low-budget film, one of his first, called Sisters, in 1972, he needed a composer, and his editor, Paul Hirsch, temp-tracked the movie, that is, used temporary scoring during his editing. He used music by Bernard Herrmann. And it was Paul who really advocated the hiring of Herman for the movie. And De Palma, who admitted this later, De Palma later said, isn't he dead? I mean, what's the last movie he scored? It's been years. So happily, they determined that Herman was not dead. He flew to New York. He saw the movie. Uh, he had a few blowups and, and confrontations with De Palma during that first meeting, which you can read about in my book. But basically, he watched the movie and De Palma very nervously sat through that whole experience, wondering what Herman was thinking. And Herman turned around and then started telling stories about his career and seemed relaxed and a completely different person than the adversarial man who had first arrived waving his walking stick in their face. 
and Herman said he'd do the movie. And Herman wrote, for me, what is the most frightening score of his career? I don't know if it's because I saw it when I was a little too young, and it's quite a gory, horrible, horror-filled movie, very effective film. But his score for Sisters, just if you listen to the first five seconds of that score, I get a chill down my spine. It really served the film so well that when the movie was released, many of the critics mentioned Herman in the first paragraph of their reviews. And yes, it was a minor film, but it got him noticed again. Soon, directors like William Friedkin uh, were asking for his services. Herman turned him down on The Exorcist, no less. A low-budget filmmaker whose movies have proved to have quite a lot of staying power, Larry Cohen, asked Herman to score his movie, It's Alive, about a killer baby. <laughs> and Herman said he would because he thought it was an interesting, interesting subject, and he had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And then Brian De Palma asked him to score his next film, Obsession, which you had correctly uh, linked to Vertigo, since let's say that Obsession is something of an homage to Vertigo, a similar story of a lost love that is killed and then seems to reappear in another woman. And Herman was quite ill by the time that he began working on Obsession in 1975. He was only 64 years old, but all of his battles, the combative style of his life had really taken a toll on him, and he seemed 15 years older. When he came to New York, because by this time he was living in London, to see Obsession, he was very friendly with Brian, and you know he, uh, he would, I think, was ready to score the film. And he saw Paul Hirsch, the editor, and Paul noticed that as Herman was watching the rough cut, Herman was laughing. And this is not a movie you laugh during. It's a, you know, it's a thriller. At the end, Paul asked Benny why he was laughing, and Benny said, that's because I can already hear the music, and you have to wait. So that's how confident he was. And it is true that he would often leave a screening with a very strong concept and a sense of what he wanted to do with the film. He just, I think radio, the speed of live radio and his own genius had trained him to decide things rather quickly. So he put his heart and soul into obsession. It's a big score. He used the organ at St. Giles uh, in London that he just loved. And his score is one of the biggest sounding that he ever wrote. You cannot watch that movie and not notice the music. But 
I think it does a lot to give the film emotion. Herman felt that Cliff Robertson's performance was too cool and too unemotional. I would agree with him. And he was also very enamored of uh, Jean-Yves Bujol. He was just utterly beguiled by her on screen. So he really connected strongly with that film. It was a very intense emotional experience. And when the scoring was done and Herman was watching the film with the score mixed, he had the exact opposite reaction of his initial viewing of it. He was crying. And he cried a long time after the film stopped running. And most people in the, that small screening room kind of left out of embarrassment. And Paul Hirsch, the editor, walked him out. And then I think it was the next day or so, Paul asked Benny just what he had been feeling. And Herman said that he felt that all the characters had left him. That's how personally he would get involved in a film. And also, I think he had some intimation, let's say, of his own mortality, because he would have about three months more to live after that.
Yes, Herman was so influential with these young directors, he supervised the title sequences of the films. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, apparently, he sort of dictated the whole opening credit sequence of Obsession <laughs> to De Palma, and De Palma was smart enough to listen. Herman started his film career with a bang with Citizen Kane, and he went out with an almost literal one with Taxi Driver. Of course, it's such a violent and intense film. And Martin Scorsese, I think it's it, just all of your listeners know by now what a film historian he is, and he loved Herman's music, and he said that he could not think of anyone other than Herman to score Taxi Driver, that it was a gothic film, and he wanted gothic music. When he approached Herman, Herman typically said, no, no, I don't want to do it. I don't know anything about Taxi Drivers. And <laughs> Martin Scorsese said, it's not about taxi driving per se. Let, let me send you the script. And Herman read the script, and he was very intrigued by that character. And it, even before it was brought so unforgettably to life by Robert De Niro, who also met Bernard Herman. And Herman visited the production. He, again, living in London, but came to New York, talked about the score. And it's an unusual score for Herman, because although it does have some characteristic qualities like muted brass and a great communicated sense of strength through the brass and the percussion, I love the way he uses a kind of snare, almost like it's the ticking meter, but the ticking time bomb that is Travis Bickle. But there was also an element of jazz and this very lyrical jazz theme that Herman wrote for the film. It's a score that people remember and probably is more influential even now than it was when it was released. Well, Herman first saw the film in October. He flew from London to Los Angeles to supervise the recording of the score in late December. And at that point, he wasn't conducting as he had usually done on his films. He was just too weak, so he was supervising the conducting of it. And word got around that Bernard Herman was in Los Angeles, something that hadn't happened in a long time. And in one of the great, great kind of race notes that come at the end of his life, Steven Spielberg, fresh off the success of Jaws, came over to the recording studio at, at Scorsese's invitation to meet Bernard Herman. And Steven Spielberg said, hey, Mr. Herman, I love your music. You're just a brilliant composer and was, was saying all these various things, sincerely. And typically for Herman, Herman said, oh yeah, well then why do you always hire Johnny Williams to score your movies? And I have to put this in context and say that Herman and John Williams were very close friends. Uh, Herman had been a mentor to John Williams. They loved each other. So that was just classic Herman just being like, okay, you love me so much, but then why don't you give me a job? You know, he, he couldn't resist. It was not a knock on John Williams at all. But I love that. that that's so Bernard Herman.
After the last session, Herman went out to dinner with Larry Cohen and his wife Norma, and then they went back to their hotel, and Herman went to sleep, and he never woke up. I have to just say, I so wish Benny could have lived 24 hours longer, because the next day, his good friend Fred Steiner was coming to do a really career-comprehensive interview. And, you know, when people interviewed Herman, they always would ask about the famous movies. And as a biographer, you know, they never asked him about The Twilight Zone. They never asked him about The Hitchcock Hour. I'm sure Fred, with his career in film and television, would have gotten that big interview. But we have the music. That's the important part.
of all the scores Herman composed throughout his career, which ones stood out for you? Well, I, I wish I could come up with more original answers, but the music of Vertigo, I think, is as good as a film score can be. I think The Ghost and Mrs. Muir is a poetic masterpiece. And the the one that people don't know, his music for that aforementioned Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance, I think is absolutely heartbreaking and, and exquisite. And it's written for strings, harp, and celeste. And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of work. You've done two fantastic biographies on two of the most important composers in film music history, Max Steiner and Bernard Herrmann. How much did Herrmann's music, in your opinion, contributed to the film music art compared to Max Steiner? Well, I do feel very fortunate to have been asked to write biographies or have the opportunity to write biographies of perhaps, well, certainly two of the most important figures in film music history. I think Max Steiner created the modern film score as we know it in the sound era, as I try to uh, and hopefully persuade people in my book, Music by Max Steiner. I think what Herman did was that he came along a little over a decade after Max. He's the next generation, and he brings a whole different philosophy to scoring. He brings more audacious ideas about orchestra, about using electronic sounds, and he also brings his own unique harmonic language, which is so different from anyone else's. That is, you know, those those chords that we hear in the Hitchcock films that we instantly recognize as Herman's music, that harmonic language of Herman's is so distinct. The incredible originality of his orchestrations, whether it's using multiple organs for Journey of the Center of the Earth to suggest the cavernous depths of the planet, or as we've talked about, the, the, the brass and percussion sound of Jason the Argonauts, or the incredibly ahead-of-their-time electronics of the devil and daniel webster married to american folk tunes it's you know no one thought the way bernard herman did he was 50 miles ahead of everybody else and frankly i think people are still catching up with it and finally Stephen, what do you think is herman's long-term legacy in the art of film music i think bernard herman's legacy is for one thing inspiring composers to think in strong emotional terms and in original terms in terms of orchestration and creating a unique score for a film. Sadly, we live in a time when film music isn't valued very much, I think, by the majority of filmmakers. Either you can't hear it in the mix or the composers have been instructed to not write anything that's going to draw any kind of attention to itself with too many themes and so forth, the exceptions being... Interestingly, I think, you know, animation, animation depends on music, the films of Pixar and Disney, but most movies don't. That said, every single week, some film score is compared to Bernard Herrmann's. And I think it's, it's and sometimes I know the music is nothing like Bernard Herrmann's, but what the film critic is saying is that this is an emotionally impactful score. And I think that's what Herman did. I mean, his methods might have been unorthodox. But he always managed to pull people inside a film. And I'd, I can't do better, I think, than, than quote Herman. He wrote an article for the New York Times in 1945, and it was a response to the conductor Eric Leinsdorf, who'd written an op-ed piece saying movies don't need film music, basically, that underscoring was distracting and too uh, emotional and too manipulative, which, you know, let's face it, it can be sometimes. But he was really painting it all with a rather broad brush. And Herman wrote a very hyper-articulate, reasoned, thoughtful response. He, he probably blew up for a few minutes first before writing this. 
Music on the screen can seek out and intensify the inner thoughts of the characters. It can invest a scene with terror, grandeur, gaiety, or misery. It can propel narrative swiftly forward or slow it down. It often lifts mere dialogue into the realm of poetry. Finally, it is the communicating link between the screen and the audience, reaching out and enveloping all into one single experience. Stephen C. Smith, yet again, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, this time about the music of Bernard Herrmann. Thank you very much again for joining us on Talking Soundtracks. Thank you, Jason. I so appreciate your knowledge and excellent questions, and I think I'd better write another book so we'll have something else to talk about another time. 